Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Perhaps in your own time in studying the Bible at home or just reading through, you, you find sometimes yourself, you'll hit a verse and a concept and God will be really, really directing your heart. And so you, you go from that verse to another one. You say, oh, wow, yeah, look. And then you're led to another one. And the next thing you know, you spent the last hour just going all over the place, kind of random and haphazardly, but the Lord is teaching you something. And that's more of what I think we're going to end up doing this morning. I tend to like to sit in a passage, and uh, we're not going to. We're going to jump all around because of some things that the Lord has laid on my heart. Beginning with what we talked about last week in Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, we just did those two verses last week, talked through those, but there's more. And as I prayed about this, I just I, I told the Lord on, on Tuesday, I said, Lord, I, I just, I'd love to just stay here a little longer. And He said, well, why don't you? <laughs> so we are. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Holy Spirit of the living God, as we read about you, we are so privileged and blessed to speak with you and to come before you more so to know that You are present in this place and in our hearts and our lives. That You bless every follower of Jesus Christ with Your presence. And You bless us with the opportunity for so much more. So much more in terms of, of all these things that we've read, Lord, of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. There is truly, Lord, a power that we need. And we're seeing this more every day in the world we're living in. In these last days, there is a power that we desperately need. And You provide it through Your Spirit. And I just pray that You'd lead us through these things this morning. That You would uh, keep us focused. Keep us in that one place where You began to speak to us last week, speak to us some more. Spirit of Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last week, we saw how the seven qualities of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, of counsel and strength, of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, how it is portrayed in the golden menorah, the lampstand that sits in the holy place of the temple. And today I want to spend more time there. In fact, I I just was thinking all week about that, what it was like to be one of the priests and to have the, the privilege of going into the holy place and to be there and to function in, in ministry there before the Lord. The closest you could get to the Lord as far as His presence was concerned before Pentecost happened, you know, before the Lord poured out His Spirit and said, hey, I'm with you now always. But in those days, to get close. And there are places in Israel today, in Jerusalem, in fact, beneath the Temple Mount, there's a tunnel. The Rabbi's Tunnel, they call it. That you can go through, and as you're walking through that, there's a place about midway down that they believe is the closest to where the Ark of the Covenant was, at least across from it. And there are little stations set up there. And usually there are women in there, Jewish women who are praying and seeking out the Lord because they believe that location is is so close to the Lord. And if you were in Israel back in, in the days of the tabernacle or later the temple, 
you would know, oh, what a privilege the priests had to go in there and to be inside the holy place. I want to stay there this morning. And if I wander or ramble at all, I just invite you to to imagine that place, to sit in the presence of the Lord in that place, in the holy place of the temple. For all of this takes place right there. Everything we're going to talk about takes place right there. We need to understand as, as we begin this that the five pieces of furniture inside the tabernacle, there were two on, on the outside in the outer courtyard, the uh, bronze altar and, and the bronze laver or laver. But once you got into the holy place, there were three pieces of furniture in there, two more in the holy of holies. Five pieces all together. But I want to show you something and, and just keep a, a marking there perhaps in Isaiah 11 too. I'll refer to it a few times. But turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. The book of Hebrews, chapter 9. The Hebrew writer, I think it was probably Paul, spoke and wrote about these five pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. And what I want you to see and understand right off the bat here is that these were earthly representations of actual heavenly realities. What was in, what God decided to put, it wasn't a random thing. He didn't say, you know... The pagan religions have stuff in their temple. We've got to have something in here too. That was not the reasoning of the Lord. What's in the holy place, what's in the holy of holies, was representative of that which is in the throne room, in heaven, before the Lord. He gave us earthly pictures that we might understand what was going on in the heavenlies. Watch this. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, that would be the holy place, in which were the lampstand, and the table and the sacred bread, this is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Five items in the tabernacle. The golden lampstand. The golden table of showbread. The altar of incense there in the holy place. And then in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant sat the mercy seat. Now if you're paying attention, you may have caught something that seems problematic. Because in Hebrews chapter 9, we're told, verse 4, the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant were in the holy of holies. There's a contradiction There seems to be a problem because Exodus chapter 30, verse 6, and pretty much everywhere else, save one place in the entire Old Testament, has the altar of incense in the holy place, not in the holy of holies. In other words, before the veil, if you were to walk into the holy place, what you would see before your eyes is to your left immediately was the golden lampstand, which as we talked about last week, refers to or speaks of the Holy Spirit. Immediately to your right on the other side of the holy place sat the table of showbread. And directly in front of you, you would see the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. And up against that veil was the altar of incense. So why does the Hebrew writer put the altar of incense on the inside, inside the holy of holies? Critics of the Bible say, see, your Bible's inaccurate. 
But the Hebrew writer is talking about atonement. And something happened with the altar of incense once a year, every year, that makes this fit perfectly. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 12 says, Aaron shall take a fire pan full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, otherwise he will die. On the Day of Atonement, there was a a special um, altar of incense. In fact, the Mishnah, the Jewish first section of the Jewish Talmud, tells us there was a separate altar of incense made from an expressly, particularly beautiful gold, even more so than the typical altar of incense, and that was brought in on the Day of Atonement. And that was actually carried around into the Holy of Holies so that Aaron could perform this function, so that the priests following could perform this function of going in there and lighting incense in the Holy of Holies so that the smoke would cover then the mercy seat. It was there on the Day of Atonement annually once a year. And the Hebrew writer, he's talking about the Old and the New Covenants, but he's focused on atonement. So, thinking like a good Jew, he's thinking, yeah, on the Day of Atonement, the altar of incense is in the Holy of Holies. Now, the rest of the time, sure, it was in the Holy Place. But it answers the question. And I love what he says in verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So he even admits himself, he's not going into everything, he's just trying to paint a picture. He's trying to help his readers, help us understand something that we might not otherwise understand. And he continues on. Skip down to verse 23 of Hebrews 9. And we get more to the point. He says, therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. The heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the earthly tabernacle and every item within were actually earthly representations of heavenly realities. Once you begin to understand that, then things take on an entirely different meaning. Then we can see how the golden lampstand, the golden menorah, is actually only a representation. That it's just a picture for us of the greater heavenly reality. Turn over to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. Now we saw last week in Revelation chapter 1... That John referred to, Revelation 1-4, the seven spirits who are before the throne. I told you, he talked about that four times in the book of Revelation. The seven spirits before the throne. We compared that, the seven spirits of God, to the golden lampstand. Seven lamps, six branches going out, and the main shaft, seven lamps. Remember that? Picture of the Holy Spirit. And that's what John is referring to here. Listen to it. Revelation chapter 4 now, verse 5. John is in heaven. He is caught up in heavenly vision to that throne room, to what we would call the holy place of heaven. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. The golden lampstand. In the tabernacle, in the the earthly representation, the mere copy of things, the lampstand was there. Before 
the mercy seat, before the throne, but only a copy of the heavenly reality, which John now sees seven fires burning, seven lights there, seven lamps of fire before the throne, which he says are the seven spirits of God. See, this was, re- this was a copy down here. That is the reality. Seven spirits of God listed again in Isaiah 11.2. The Spirit of the Lord, that main, main shaft. And then branching off from that, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and fear of the Lord. John says this represented. Isaiah jumps on board actually prior to John stating that the, these seven things, this is the Spirit of the Lord. Represented by that lampstand. Go over to Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. Next chapter over. John continues to write and he says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Wait a minute, I thought the seven lamps burning before the throne were the seven spirits of God. And now you're telling me that the seven eyes on the Lamb are the seven spirits of God. Why is that? Because the Spirit of God is the Spirit of the Lamb, is the Spirit of Christ. And John is drawing you in to help you understand this. He looks at Jesus the Lamb. And then he recognizes an amazing, a remarkable truth that literally changes our lives today. And that's this. The seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now don't get weird or freaked out by this. Sometimes people read Revelation and they, and they try to make up things. Seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. Maybe they were seven angels you know, that, that God sent out to do His bidding. Or, or seven just freakish little things that He sent. I don't know, what is that? The reality is, the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The explanation is simple. It's the Holy Spirit. As we have seen from Isaiah 11.2, as we see with that golden menorah, the Holy Spirit sent out into all the earth. Jesus said this, John 16.7, one of the greatest things He ever spoke and most important for us to understand. I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. If I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. How is that to our advantage, Lord? Even today, when we say, I'd rather walk with Jesus right here. I'd rather have Jesus as our pastor. (laughs) Get Rick out of the way. Have Jesus come up here and teach us and be with us and walk with us tangibly, actually in the flesh today. And Jesus says, no. It is far more to your advantage that I go. Why? Because if I go, then my Spirit can come and reside in you and with you. So that when we split here this morning and head back to our homes, guess who goes? Jesus does. And He's not limited by the flesh. And He's not limited by location. If I go, it is to your advantage. The advantage of the Holy Spirit that has been misunderstood and confused and misused and abused, rejected by some in the church for 2,000 years. And I keep thinking about this and praying about these things. The bottom line is the Holy Spirit is to our advantage in these last days. But do we take advantage of the Spirit of God? It is to our advantage that He indwells us, His Spirit, with my Spirit. It is to our advantage, listen, that He equips His followers with supernatural ability in the natural world. 
And I know when I use the word supernatural that it freaks some people out. It concerns some. It's like, okay, how far are you going with this? What are you pushing for? Only what the Lord has for us. No less and no more. The attributes of the Spirit, Isaiah 11, verse 2, are attributes that He would give to you and to me. They are supernatural attributes, as we talked about Wednesday, and we talked about actually Sunday night last week. The attributes are supernatural because the Spirit is supernatural. I mean, you could apply those things in the flesh. You could say, well, understand, counsel and understanding. I could pay 150 bucks, you know, an hour to get counsel and understanding. Sure, you can. You can do that. Fleshly counsel, carnal understanding, counsel and understanding of the natural man, or you can go to the Holy Spirit of the living God and His counsel and His understanding, supernatural. Beyond natural. Not bound by the flesh. And that's what I want. This is what I'm looking for. And those who would deny the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit at work in believers today should pause and consider whether or not we really believe in a supernatural God. If we would reject the power of the Spirit at work, are we not rejecting the fact that our God is powerful? We're warned that we would see this kind of denial in these last days. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, Realize this, in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. You could sum that all up with one word, natural. The natural man. The natural tendencies. Then he says this, and this should haunt us, gang, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. I think if I denied the power of God to truly do His work in me, personally, in my life, in this world, have we held back the power of the living God to accomplish what He wants to accomplish in this place. Is Tebow winning football games by the power of God? Well, based on last night, apparently not. (laughs) Game over. What was it, 45 to 10? Ow! They got squashed. And I'm sure guys like Bill Maher think that's the greatest thing in the world. (laughs) I see proof positive. Either there is no God or He really doesn't care about Tebow. Interesting how he has caught the public awareness. Tim Tebow. Some of you know last Sunday when Denver beat Philadelphia in overtime, an amazing game, that he passed for 316 yards. That the completion rate was 3.16%. And I think, Mike, help me with this. Wasn't there another 316 in there somewhere? He has it on, yeah, John 316. He's got on his, on his little eye stuff down there. Amazing, really interesting. And people are sitting back, and I I heard that, and I watched that, and went, huh. I mean, I like football, don't get me wrong, but does God help players win games who pray to Him? And and of course, everybody's talking about it. It's been on the radio all week. To some, it's a curiosity. To others, it's just ridiculous. Silliness. Superstition. Still others think it trivializes God and His power. Don't, don't bend down there in the end zone and, and pray as if that's going to help you win a game. And, and you know what Tebow has said? 
I'm not praying that God helps us win the game. I'm praying that He helps me to play well. That He helps me to, to play with some sense of integrity. I'm really impressed with this guy. This guy who, who, who is going around, and you know what he does when other quarterbacks are in the locker room focusing on winning the game? You know what he's doing? He, he's bringing uh, retarded kids or kids with medical issues or problems down to the field, and he's meeting with them and their parents and talking with them right up to when the game starts. He's ministering. That lends tremendous credibility to the man being down on one knee, as far as I'm concerned. But people, you might wonder, okay, so what do you think, Rick? What about praying for winning a football game? What's the deal with this? Personally, I don't think the issue is winning the games. I think most of you would agree. The issue is acknowledging God. The issue is whether or not the game is won. The issue is that God gets glorified. And that's what He wants for Himself. And that's what He's called us to do, to be people who no matter what the circumstances are in, in the world, no matter what the outcome is, we will glorify the Lord with our lives. Which means you come to church and you're faithful and you give and you do all these things and your life goes in the tank. You don't say, that's it, I'm done. You say, praise the Lord. I will still glorify Him with my life. If the economy flips upside down and the dollar disappears and we are all on you know, some other foreign currency, that we would still take a knee and praise the Lord that He is the Lord. But that, that takes a little power. You know, it takes some, some strength and awareness that does not come from the natural man or from the natural woman. And I love with Tebow that the Lord has yet again entered the public debate. He's back on the front page. Yeah. You just can't keep him off. Yeah. That's right. We serve a supernatural God. Now, I, I realize there are those who would say, what about all those weird outer rim church movements? as I call them. I don't want to get into charismania, you know? I don't want to be bizarre. What about all those emotional workups that just they, they don't seem to represent a God who is not a God of confusion? What about all that? Well, John tells us very clearly that the Spirit of God has been sent out into all the earth. So He's here. Whether you want to acknowledge Him or not, He is here and He is at work. And Paul, the Apostle, says very clearly in 1 Thessalonians 5, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. So I've said here before, I'm not interested in supernatural power for supernatural thrills. I'm not interested in in the feeling that comes with it. But we cannot hope to do the work of God in the natural man or in the natural woman. We're not going to get it done. In fact, Jesus said to my favorite church among the seven churches in the Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, He said to Philadelphia, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. And I think, I want to be that church. I want the bridge to be that church. A a, a last days, mission-minded, gospel-preaching, word-keeping, Christ-confessing church with little power in and of ourselves. But with great power by the Spirit of God. Recognizing we're not getting anything done ourselves, but gang, in spite of our little power... Don't you want to walk through the open door that God has opened that no one can shut? 
to, to go to that place. Does anyone really not want to take advantage of the light of the Holy Spirit in these darkening last days? And see, I think any Christian that you would ask that question, regardless of tradition or where we come from, any believer in Jesus would say, well, of course I want to walk with His Spirit. Of course I want to have His strength, His power. So what is the advantage of the Holy Spirit to us? Stay in the holy place. Consider the holy place. With Isaiah's description of those seven attributes of the Spirit and John's connection to the seven lamps of the menorah, think about this. What was it that the menorah illuminated in the holy place? If we were to go in there, in that place, as those lamps are burning to our left, what is it that we would see? First thing is the menorah lit up the holy place for the priests. If not for the light of the menorah, the priests could not do their work. They couldn't function. Without the lampstand, they could just stumble around in the darkness. It was an enclosed place, gang. It would be pitch dark in there without the lamp of the menorah. And so the priests would not be able to function as priests. Gang, the Spirit of the Lord illuminates the work of the priesthood. What are we if not a royal priesthood? The priests are even an example of the church today. 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. In other words, we cannot do the work of the Lord without the Spirit of the Lord. If we try, it's nothing but pretense, it's false, it's religion. Without the Spirit of the Lord. And without the light of His lampstand, without the light of His Spirit, all we're going to do is walk into walls. Which perhaps is why sometimes church gets frustrating. Because we're functioning without the Spirit, so we're functioning blind, and we're walking into walls, and we're getting frustrated as we hit barriers. We can't seem to get done the work that God has called us to. We read about it, we study the Bible and see it there, we know what He wants us to do, but we can't get it done. We're walking into walls. Why? Maybe, perhaps... We've discounted the light of the Holy Spirit. And we're trying to do the work with blinders on. Without His Spirit. Listen. Without His Spirit, we may even be in the holy place. But we won't see a thing. We can't. The Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians 1.17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power to those of us who believe. Oh, the first two are great. It's the third one that we can gloss over. The surpassing greatness of His power toward those of us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. Well, how strong is God? He raised Jesus from the dead. Go back a little further. How strong is God? Part of the Red Sea. Go back a little further. How strong is God? Created the world. That power, that might, that working, His same Spirit, the Spirit that brooded over the waters that was there at creation, the same Spirit for the power of those of us who believe. And so without the Spirit, without the lampstand... Priests couldn't even do their work. Same with us. We can't do the work. 
But what else did the lampstand illuminate? You're standing there in the holy place. It's lit up on the left. And over to the right, you notice the menorah reveals the table of showbread. Now remember this. Everything in the holy place was overlaid in pure gold. So the table of showbread would be pure gold lit up by the lampstand and it would be sparkling and gleaming and absolutely beautiful just to your right. Every Sabbath, 12 loaves were placed of fresh baked showbread were placed there stacked on the table in the holy place directly across from the lampstand. Here's how they did it. The Mishnah describes this. The changing of the bread. And we have the changing of the guard. They have that in in Great Britain. This is the changing of the bread. Four priests entered the holy place. Two of them carrying piles of bread and two carrying cups of incense. Four priests had already gone in before them. And two take off the old two, uh, of the two old piles of showbread and two take off the cups of incense. Now listen to how they do this. Those who brought in the new bread stood at the north side facing southward. Those who took away the old bread stand on the south side facing northward. One part lifted off, the other part put on. The hands of the one being over and against the hands of the other, as it is written, Thou shalt set upon the table of bread of the Passover always before me. The loaves that were removed were delivered then to the priests for their consumption within the tabernacle. So they literally, they would slide, and they had kind of a shelf. You've you got to imagine this, a gold shelf that would hold the different showbread, you know, stacked up in six, so twelve total. And they would take one off and slide the other one on. And then they take the next one off and they slide the other one on. Why? Because they wanted to make sure that the showbread was always on the table before the Lord. There wasn't even a split second. You know, it wasn't like take it off, take it outside. You got the bread baked. Oh, okay, we just got to wait a few minutes. Then you bring it in. It was one off, one on. But here's the thing: the bread that was taken off became sustenance for the priest. In fact, the priest was to eat it right there. Right there and then. What sustains the royal priesthood of believers? What sustains us? Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The Spirit reveals to us. The lampstand reveals the table of showbread. The Spirit reveals the Word to us. Written and spoken. The Word of God. What God would have His people know, the Spirit reveals to us. And we are, the more we are in the Word, the more we are ingesting and digesting the Word of the Lord, the more we gain these things, the Spirit of understanding and wisdom, counsel and strength, knowledge and fear of the Lord. These become more a part of who we are as we take Him in. He sustains us. Jesus said in John 16, 13, When He, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own initiative. Whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will disclose to you what is to come. But there's more than this. It's more than just helping me understand what the Bible says. The showbread had another name. The showbread was called the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. Indicating the very present Word of God. And as the priest would eat it there in the tabernacle, they would be in the presence of the Lord. And that is Jesus' intention with His Spirit. Turn over to John chapter 14. The Gospel of John chapter 14. Look at verse 18. 
And you might just kind of keep a marker or a finger there in John because we're going to look at a few more passages in John, I think, before we're done. John 14, 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live you will live also. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, in my Father, and you in me and I in you. Incredible intimacy he's promising here. Verse 23, further down. He says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Now think about this. The bread of the presence, our sustenance. Why do I get run down in faith? Why do I get I get spiritually tired or exhausted? When does that happen? It happens when I am lacking the bread of the presence. When I am separated from. The speaking of the word of the Lord into my life, into my heart. Jeremiah 15, 16, Jeremiah said, Your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Why? Why are the words of God the delight of Jeremiah's heart? Because when I'm in His word, I feel and know His presence. And my friends, this is not, this is not preaching. This, is, this has become reality for me. Because of the requirement, and it's one that I didn't expect, but because of my weekly study requirement, you know, my, my duties, as it were, as a pastor, and I really don't look at it that way, but, but you can think of it that way. Eight years ago, we started the bridge, and I realized, okay, I'm going to be teaching every Sunday, every, every, every Wednesday night. I, I need to have specific times where I devote to study during the week. You know what happened? I started realizing that the more I was in the Word, A, the more I loved being in the Word, Two, the more I love the Word. And D, the more I heard God. And I mean, all the time. The more I hear Him. I, it's like being in conversation with the Lord. These are my favorite times of the week. I may have shared before, because I know... He's going to speak. He speaks to me sometimes through the Word. Sometimes I'm in a passage and I'm, and I'm, I'm in conversation. I'm saying, Lord, I'm not sure what, what this means. What does this mean? Can you help me understand this better? And, and then something, a verse, a passage will come to light and, and, I'll, and I'll think, and I'll flip over and, and there's the answer. So sometimes it's, it's as simple as that, that He's indicating and directing. Other times He speaks directly to my heart. He, he tells me things that I, I'm telling you, the natural man, I could not figure out. I would not know. I, I wouldn't know to share. I wouldn't know the question to ask. And he says things to my heart. And he gives me answers. And it's a reality I experience. And yes, I hear him speaking in those times. And he has become for me sustenance. Being in the Word. See, there's a dynamic there. It's not whether the Logos, the written Word, or the Rima, the spoken Word. It's both. It is His Word. And His Word is consistent, and His Word is true, and His Word is never contradictory. It is just the Word of God. And His Word is Jesus. And we have this dynamic with the Holy Spirit. So if you're feeling a little weak in your faith, guess what? You need more time in the Word. You need to spend more time with the living Word. I've shared so many times, there are no shortcuts to this. It's not just going to happen because you want it to. 
You know, it's not a once a week prayer during church. Okay, Lord, this week, could you just speak to me more? And then you don't think about Him again until the next Sunday. It's not going to happen. Would that happen in a marriage? I want more intimacy with you, sweetheart. See you in a week. (laughs) And so the Lord is saying, spend time with me. Be with me. Stay with me. The bread of the presence. And you know what illuminates this for us? The Holy Spirit does. The Spirit illuminates the Word. The Spirit illuminates the Lord. The Spirit illuminates His presence for us. Speaking of His presence, something else is illuminated for us. The golden lampstand illuminated the altar of incense. So you're there, and the light's blazing, and there's the altar of incense, and it's sparkling off the altar, and you can see it there before you. This was, next to the Ark of the Covenant itself, the altar of incense was the most sacred piece of furniture in the entire tabernacle. This was the one to look to. Because at the altar of incense, the priests were closer to the Lord than at any other time. What were they doing there? Intercessory prayer. Not just prayer, intercessory prayer. This was the place the priests went to intercede on behalf of the people of Israel. And they could pray their own prayers as well, but there at the altar of incense, offering up that sweet incense, the smoke would go up before the Lord. The whole holy place would smell beautiful because of that incense, that frankincense on the altar. And the priests came in every single day. They came in daily, offering incense and prayer before God's or, or for God's people before the Lord. Just as the lampstand illuminated the golden altar of incense where the priests prayed, so the Spirit of the Lord illuminates our prayer lives. The prayers that we pray. Paul says, I know you're familiar with this, Romans 8.26, we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. Intercessory prayer. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now again, you may be familiar with that passage, but let me ask you. How often are we encouraged to engage in intercessory prayer? What do you mean intercessory prayer? Exodus chapter 30, verse 7, tells us that Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it, on the altar of incense. He shall burn it every morning when he trims the lamps. He shall uh, have perpetual incense before the Lord. It says, when Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. Perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You know what happened? The priest went in morning, noon, and night. And perpetual incense went up before the Lord. Their job, their task, their role was to keep that incense burning. To keep the aroma going up constantly, without stop. That is a picture for how we are called to pray. Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. And you know Jesus does. You see, even when we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Jesus perpetually prays for His people. Where do you get that? Hebrews 7.25. He's able to save forever those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Now remember, this is, this is an earthly representation of a heavenly reality. Listen to the heavenly reality. Over in Revelation chapter 8, we see the heavenly reality of the altar of incense right there present in heaven before the throne. Revelation chapter 8. 
Verse 3. It says, Another angel came and stood at the altar. There is a heavenly reality. The altar, having a golden censer and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Prayer makes things happen, gang. And intercessory prayer is the deal. This is the essence of intercessory prayer. It's pr- Listen, it's prayer offered up by the saints pleading and interceding for other people. That's intercessory prayer. I'm convicted by this. When we pray for each other and pray often, it is a pleasing aroma before the Lord. But there were two restrictions on how the incense was to be offered. And here's where the conviction comes. Number one, no strange fire. No strange fire. Exodus chapter 30 verse 9, you shall not offer any strange incense on this altar or burnt offering or meal offering. And you shall not pour out a drink offering on it. There is one special prescribed kind of offering on this altar, the altar of intercession, the altar of incense. Don't do anything else on this one. Don't get weird with me. Don't get creative, (laughs) the Lord says. Here's how you are to do this. Strange fire. No strange fire. What does that look like? Nadab and Abihu? Ring any bells for anybody? The two rather out of control sons of Aaron? Leviticus chapter 10 tells the story and it's a tragic story. It's inauguration day. It's, it's, it's the day that, that Aaron and his sons are being anointed for the priesthood. It's a wonderful day, a glorious day, a joyful day. And Nadab and Abihu apparently, and you have to read the chapter to see this, but apparently we're tipping back a little bit on the old wine. And having a little bit too much fun and decide, decide to come up with some creative ways of offering fire on the altar. And they bring their own fire pans and they fire up some kind of false, strange fire. And the Lord sends fire out of the tabernacle and immediately burns them up and they're gone. Incredible story. No strange fire. What does that mean related to the altar of incense and intercessory prayer? Bottom line, gang, prayer is never about personal exaltation. Prayer is never about personal exhibition. Prayer is never about personal entertainment. It's not the voodoo you do. That's not prayer. I love how Jesus just keeps it all so real. He says, Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, when you pray, go into your inner room. Close your door, pray to your Father who's in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret, He'll reward you. And when you're praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. They suppose they will be heard for their many words. Jesus says, no strange fire. You don't have to get weird or wacky. I hear your prayers. Just pray. But I don't know exactly what to say. doesn't matter. Keep it simple, man. Just pray. And especially pray for others. Let your prayers be more intercessory than selfish. That's the second requirement, by the way, of the altar of incense. No strange fire and no selfish use. Exodus chapter 30, verse 37. The incense which you shall make, you shall not make in the same proportions for yourselves. It shall be holy to you for the Lord. 
you would not have a Yankee candle with frankincense smell. It would be inappropriate. Christmas cookie is a okay. <laughs> they were not to take that incense, wonderful, sweet-smelling as it was, they were not to take that same mixture of incense out of the holy place and take it home to burn for their own personal use. God said, don't you do it. Don't be selfish. How many of our prayers are offered selfishly? Now, don't get me wrong. God wants us to bring our prayers to Him. But think about in all the world, all the prayers that go up in times of crisis or in times of want or in times of desire that are not about the things of the Lord. They're about the things of Rick. You know, they're about the things of man, the things that we want. Or, or maybe we think, well, I've tried everything else, I'll try this. You know, if you're up there, how about this? How about letting us win this football game? You know? How many of our prayers are more about our will than His will. But this is wonderful. As the Spirit of the Lord shines on our prayers, they become more and more centered on the will of God and less and less centered on the will of Rick, which is why we pray in the Spirit. It's why we focus our prayers in the Spirit. It's why we ask the Spirit to intercede for us and for our prayers. Mark 14.36, Jesus said, Abba, Father, All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So the menorah lit up the workplace of the priests. They could see what they were doing. The menorah lit up the table of showbread, the sustenance of the priests. The the menorah lit up there the altar of incense, representative of our prayers. And number four, the menorah lit up the veil. The menorah lit up the veil. Go back to the holy place. You're standing there and you're looking around. And at first, the glittering gold is probably most attractive to you. You see these pieces of furniture and go, wow, this is just beautiful. It smells good and the light is flickering on all these things. But as your eyes adjust, and the more you look by the light of the menorah, the more you begin to look at the veil itself, which was absolutely beautiful. It was a thing of of great craftsmanship. Exodus 26.31, the Lord said, You shall make a veil out of blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen, fine twisted linen, and it shall be made with, with cherubim, the work of a skillful workman. And God poured His Holy Spirit out on a couple of guys who did all the artwork, all the artistry, all the craftsmanship that went into the tabernacle. But the veil, the veil, okay, if everything on earth It's just a representation, a copy of the real things in heaven. What about the veil? What's this a picture of for us? Well, think about this. The colors that went into it. Colors are representative. Blue. Color of heaven. A heavenly color. Purple. The color of royalty. Scarlet. The color of blood. Fine linen. The color of righteousness. Think this through. The Spirit of the Lord illuminates the veil and we see Jesus. Jesus was heavenly minded. He talked about heaven all the time. John 14.2 In my Father's house are many dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. He says, that where I am, there you can be also. He wrote that song. That where I am, there you may also be. 
Jesus knew His royalty. He answered Pilate, You say that I am a king? For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Yes, I was born to be king. I am a king. The color of scarlet woven into the veil, reminding us of His blood. And by the way, the word scarlet used there in Exodus 26 to be woven into the veil, the the literal word there is tola. We've talked about before, the tola worm. It was an actual worm in the Middle East that was ground up and used for the scarlet color that came out of grinding up this worm. That's what they used for the dye that went into this veil. You're like, worm guts? Yes! But it was a bright scarlet color, a blood red. So you've got a veil there with the heavenly blue and the royal purple and the blood red scarlet woven into it. Psalm 22, verse 6. Jesus, speaking prophetically through David, says, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by people. And the word worm there in Psalm 26 is tola. Same as the word for scarlet, tola, used in the veil. The veil shows us Jesus. What about the fine linen? Fine linen is righteousness. Speaks of righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who made him... He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And note this, Revelation 19.8 tells us the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So fine linen woven into the veil. The righteous acts of the saints. The menorah lit up the veil. The veil is beautiful. The veil speaks of Jesus, but it speaks in an even greater way because the veil was the way to the mercy seat. To get to the mercy seat, you had to go through the veil. You had to pass through the veil. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He says, when the Helper comes, John 15, 26, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about me. John 16.14 He will glorify Me for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. The lampstand illuminated the veil in the same way the Spirit illuminates every beautiful nuance of the will of Jesus Christ for your life and for my life. But the veil was torn, wasn't it? The veil was torn. And Hebrews chapter 10 if you want to turn there you can just listen. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 We go even further in this understanding. As he says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We go through the veil that was torn. Jesus, the veil was torn that we might enter into the Holy of Holies, that there would be no barrier there any longer, that we could approach the Father and come to the mercy seat. And you know what? We would not get it if it wasn't for the Holy Spirit. We would not understand that if not for the lampstand illuminating the veil for us that we might see these things and understand this truth. 
I tell you the truth, Jesus said. It is to your advantage that I go away. If I go away, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Here's where it's critical. It's not just a salvation issue. Jesus is not just a salvation issue. Jesus is a life issue. The illumination of the Spirit of God on Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is an entire life issue. It's how we face everything we have to face. And without the Spirit of the Lord active and at work in our lives, we don't have the power to to, to understand this. Or even to move in the day to day. The Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, He, He illuminates our most holy work. He illuminates for us our sustenance, what keeps us going. He illuminates for us our prayers that we might even pray in ways we don't know how. He shows us the way to the Father by Jesus. And as followers of Christ in these last days, I honestly don't see how anybody can see the power of the Holy Spirit as optional. I go to church, I just don't go to one of those churches. Is your church spirit-filled? I hope so. (laughs) I mean... Are there churches that are not? I mean, truly? I know how we have the little designation, this is a spirit-filled church because they're Pentecostal and charismatic, and this church over here is a denomination, and so they're not. I think we're all supposed to be spirit-filled churches. His power. It's not optional. It is not optional for any church. It is not optional for any believer to function in and with the supernatural power of the Spirit of God. It's not optional. Why would you say that? Because in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, we find out something else about the golden lampstand. It is not just representative of the Holy Spirit. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands is Jesus. What are the seven golden lampstands? Revelation 1.20 tells us it's the church. And that to me... I guess something I've known, but, but to put it into that understanding. Last week we talked about the golden menorah, a picture of the Spirit of the Lord, marvelous, wonderful, fantastic. The golden menorah is also a picture of the church lit up by the oil of the Holy Spirit. It's us. And if not for the church in the world today, gang, darkness... Think about this. The lampstand was made of pure gold. The other pieces were acacia wood overlaid with gold. The lampstand, from base to top, and all of its cups and branches and everything on it, pure gold. Pure hammered work. It weighed 90 pounds. It's a big thing. Big and beautiful. Today's market value of the golden lampstand by itself, for gold, 90 pounds of gold, $2.3 million dollars is what just that one piece of furniture would cost. But without the oil, that beautiful lampstand was worthless. Without the oil, it could not do the work. You know, the whole story of Hanukkah is based off of that. They ran out of oil. They they lit the lamps and realized, we don't have any more consecrated oil. It would take eight days to consecrate the oil. What are we going to do? And they prayed, and for eight days, the oil burned steadily. A miracle. And the Jews today celebrate Hanukkah because of that. The lampstand, 90 pounds of pure gold, worthless for the job that it was called to do without the oil within. Gang, without the Spirit, the church is a 90-pound weakling. 
If not for the Spirit in the church, darkness. If not for the church in the world, darkness. If not for the Spirit in the church, darkness. If not for the Spirit in the church in your life, darkness. You cannot see what the Lord has called you to see. John said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. And the light there that John's talking about, yes, it is a picture of truth. It is a picture of honesty. It is a picture of just being real. But it is also the Holy Spirit. And if we walk in the Spirit, as He is in the Spirit, we have fellowship with one another by His Spirit. The Spirit in the church in the world. Remember what John saw. He saw the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And Jesus said in Acts 1.8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be My witnesses. Put those two together. The Spirit is sent out into all the earth. We, as we are filled by the Spirit, have been sent out into all the earth. For what purpose, Rick? Witnesses. I'm a witness. I'm a witness. Thanks to Jesus, I'm no longer a defendant. I'm a witness. I'm not the judge. I'm not the jury. I'm not a prosecutor. I'm not even a defense attorney. I'm a witness. The sum total of my responsibility here is to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And as I love the church, I'm a witness. As I minister in the power of the Spirit in this fellowship, I'm a witness. As I speak the name of Jesus by His power, again, I am a witness. That's what we're called to. It's so simple. Just show up and tell the truth. But you got to show up. you got to show up by the power of the Spirit of the Lord. Precious people, let's invite the Holy Spirit to do powerful things in us and through us. And not be afraid of what that looks like, but just accept it to be whatever God wants it to be. As He continues to speak truth, Let us walk in the light as He is in the light. Amen? Amen. Father, we ask for this now. We continue to pray and we pray more fervently, Lord, for a greater outpouring of Your Holy Spirit on the Bridge Fellowship in these last days. And Lord, I don't don't mean to sound exclusive because I I pray Your Spirit will be poured out on the church in these last days in ever-increasing ways. Not just limited to this body here. But Father, we pray as, as a group of people who gather in this place. We just pray, pour out Your Spirit and fill us up and ignite us, Lord, with, with heavenly purpose and spiritual power to accomplish the things that You want to accomplish. May we not be afraid of these things. May we not quench Your Spirit in any way. We seek out the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And we pray, Lord, that You would get us off of our knees and onto the work to which You've called us, and that we truly might be lampstands filled with the Spirit, ignited and illuminating the truth in all of this darkness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.